0: Chapters later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 57, uh, verse 15 says this. Says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what God says. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, but I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the the heart of the contrite. So the person that God's going to revive is the person who has a lowly heart, a person that has a contrite heart. And so that's what we want to talk about tonight. One of, the, one of the most lowly things that we can do, one of the most contrite things that we can do is to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to preach a sermon to you tonight about positioning ourselves for revival through true Faith. And that's going to be in James again tonight, James chapter 2. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to James chapter 2. And Tonight we're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And again, I want us to consider tonight how to position ourselves to experience the reviving work of the Spirit of God through having true faith. Now, uh, up front, we should note that this passage of Scripture is not so much telling us about what true faith is as much as it is telling us about what true faith does. And so that's what we're going to see here tonight in this passage. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And uh, as always, if uh, you found your place there in your copy of God's Word, you're able I invite you to stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's perfect Word. James, the brother of Jesus, we believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God's Word to us, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, we'll read to the end of the chapter. The Word of God says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. And you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was... For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And this is the Word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this Word. And Lord, we confess together that it is the Word of God. Lord, this Word is inspired from Your mouth. Lord, it is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is authoritative and trustworthy. And so Lord, right now we submit ourselves to Your Word. And Father, uh, we're praying tonight, as we heard from Your Word last night, that You would help us, that You would enable us, that You would empower us to listen carefully to Your Word. Father, tonight I pray that You would teach us by Your Holy Spirit what true faith is all about, what true faith does. God, I pray that all of us here tonight would, by the power of Your Spirit, examine ourselves to see what kind of faith we actually have. Is it a real faith or is it not real? Father, I pray tonight You fill me with Your Spirit and work through me in only the way that You can to sow the seed of Your Word so that it would be planted and watered. Lord, tonight that You might give the growth. All for Your sake and for Your glory. We ask and pray it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and together God's people said, Amen, Amen. You can be seated. Well, tonight I have something very special in my hands that I've brought with me, and that is a a secret recipe that has been passed down. my family for for several years, and it's the recipe of my favorite dessert, and I'm going to make everybody hungry tonight by talking about this, but uh, this dessert here is called Peanut Butter Delight. Anybody ever heard of Peanut Butter Delight? (laughs) You might have heard of Peanut Butter Delight, but you've never never heard of my mama's Peanut Butter Delight, and that's what this recipe here is. It's the recipe for Peanut Butter Delight. In fact, uh, the story goes, I don't remember this, but... Story goes in my family that when I was about two and a half years old, about the, the age of my little boy, that uh, one night I got two brothers, so I got an older brother and a younger brother, and we're all just 18 months apart. And so my mom and dad had their hands full when we were growing up. And when I was about two and a half years old, my mom, when she would get us in the bed, she'd have some me time. Right, it'd be late at night, but she needed some time to herself. And uh, one night she said, about midnight." She said, "I'm going to have some peanut butter to light." And so she got the the chocolate out and she got the peanut butter out she got the oats out she got all the sugar out and she started to put all these ingredients together and she was uh, baking this and uh, there was an aroma that started to travel through the house and the aroma as i was in a dead sleep it traveled up and through the kitchen and around the corner and down the hall and into my bedroom and then into my nostrils and i woke up at about twelve thirty in the morning and, uh, and i got out of bed and i walked up to my mama and i said mama I smell chocolate. (laughs) And and I had some peanut butter delight with my mama there uh, at uh, about 1 o'clock in the morning. And so uh, this recipe here uh, has been passed down in, in our family and it's very precious to us. And so here on this recipe, we got all the ingredients and we got all the instructions. Everything's here, all the words are here on this piece of paper. And so I got a question tonight Who would like to take a bite of this recipe? Any takers tonight? Anybody want to take a bite of this recipe? I mean, all the ingredients are right here. They're they're listed right here. And all the instructions. Anybody want to to take a bite of this tonight? Well, of course you don't want to take a bite of this, right? I mean, what kind of question is that? And see, we don't want to take a bite of this recipe here because these are just what? These are just mere words on a piece of paper. And see, these words here on this uh, sheet of paper, this recipe... Uh, They're actually worthless if if you don't do anything with them. You see, this recipe here is not actually worth something unless you take the words and then put some action to it. To actually take the ingredients and put them together, the correct measurements, uh, put them together and follow the instructions. So you might say tonight, what in the world does that peanut butter delight recipe have to do with what James is saying here? And I have to say that it has everything to do with what James is saying here. Because in the same way, what James is teaching us here tonight is that faith that is uh, that consists of just mere words uh, without any action that backs it up is absolutely worthless. It is useless. And that's what God is teaching us here uh, in this passage of Scripture tonight. Uh, if our faith that we say we have with our mouths is not backed up with a transformed life with actions, then our faith is actually no real faith at all. James taught the believers in his day that true faith isn't comprised of mere words, but true faith leads to a life of vibrant works. And so the truth for all time that we can learn from this tonight is that true faith in Christ that hasn't led to a transformed life by Christ is really no faith at all. And so the question before us tonight is this, what kind of faith do you have? Is it a real faith, or is it a faith that is actually no faith at all? What kind of faith do you have? Well, James teaches us here that there are actually three kinds of faith that it's possible for us to have. Let me give those three kinds of faith to you here up front, and then we'll walk through them together. The first faith that we find here, the first kind of faith, is in verses... 14 through 17, and that is what James calls a dead faith. A faith that is not alive. It is a dead. But then there's a second kind of faith here that we find in verses 18 and 19, and that is a demonic faith, a faith that even the demons possess. So there is a dead faith, there is a demonic faith, and then third and finally, it's the true faith that God wants us to possess, and that's in verses 20 through 26 that is what we might call a dynamic faith. So tonight, there are three kinds of faith here in this passage of Scripture. There's a dead faith, there's a demonic faith, and then there is a dynamic faith. And I believe what God would have us to do tonight is to, by the power of His Spirit, look into our own lives, look into our own hearts, look into our own minds, and examine ourselves to see what kind of faith that we have And to make sure, to make absolutely certain that the faith that we say with our mouths is actually being backed up with a life that has been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. What kind of faith do you have? Well, James teaches us here, beginning in verses 14 through 17, that there's a first kind of faith, and that is a a dead faith. Notice again with me there in verse 14, as James begins, he says, What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? In other words, James is saying here, is saving faith, is, is the faith that saves, is, is it something that consists in mere words or is it something that, that is backed up and followed by a life of vibrant works? We might say here, as James is doing, as he's going to show us there in verse 17, uh, saying that there is a faith that's alive and faith that is dead. We might say that James is teaching us here that there are, are kinds of vital signs that we will be able to see, be able to notice if someone's faith is real. And so, vital signs and for those of you who may be in the medical field, I'm not in the medical field, but I do know enough to know that if you want to know if somebody's alive, you, you got to look for some vital signs, right? And so, if you want to know if someone's alive, you look for some temperature, you look for the pulse, you look for uh, if they're breathing, if they have blood pressure, right? So, the way that you know someone's alive is you look for those things. And what James is teaching us here is that there are, in the lives of those who profess faith in Jesus, outward realities that will reveal whether our faith is dead or alive. And the vital signs here are these vibrant works. We might say works of love for God and love for other people. And James, being the good preacher that he is, I believe that's where he takes us here in verses 15 and 16. Uh, He gives us a a bit of imagery here as he lifts up a, a hypothetical situation, kind of a scenario in which there's a person who says one thing with his mouth, but then lives something different with his life. And so notice there in verse 15 what he says. He says, "...if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food..." Verse 16, and one of you, and notice the emphasis on the word, says to him, one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So James here is painting a picture for us that if we're gathered as the the body of Christ, if we're gathered as the church and there's a a brother or sister and, and they don't have the proper clothing tonight, or they are here and you can tell that they're either undernourished or malnourished, And they have a need. Notice what this person does here that only has faith that comes out of their mouth and is not backed up by works. They do three things. Number one, they see the need. They are able to, to see with their eyes that there is a need here. There is a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in food. They're able to notice that. They see that. But the second thing they do instead of actually meeting the needs is they use words... To bless them. God bless you. You Go in peace. And and so what we begin to see here is that they they are are, are using their mouth to express their faith. So they not only see the need, but they bless this person with mere words. But that's not the only thing that they do. They not only see the need, bless them with words, but we find here that this hypothetical person is actually very religious. Because they offer up a prayer for this person. Notice that's, that's what uh, that means there in verse 16. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Because of the, the tense of uh, the request here, this is most scholars believe this is a kind of prayer that this person is praying. And so they, they speak religious words of go in peace, they speak blessing, and they, they offer up some sort of prayer, but they totally miss what God wants us to do. And that is not use mere words to express our faith, but use action to express our faith. You see here, this person is is saying one thing with their mouth, but they are living something entirely different with their life, with their actions. You see tonight, we can say anything we want to, but that doesn't mean that it's actually real. You know, in order to illustrate this, I think about a story of a pastor friend of mine who whose dad was actually a pastor, and so he grew up as a as a pastor's kid. And uh, where they grew up, it was uh, near the Charlotte area, and they had a lot of bodies of water that surrounded them. and And the, the dad he uh, he really wanted to have a boat that he could take uh, himself and his, his children out on. And uh, so for the longest time, he kept saving up and saving up and saving up and and he, and he wanted to get this boat. And so uh, when he finally got enough money, he, he got a boat. And he said, uh, when he got the boat, uh, his son, my, my pastor friend, he said, uh, Dad, what are we going to name? We've got to give a boat a name, right? We've got we to gotta name it. And he said, son, we're going we're gonna to name the boat Visitation. That's what we're going to name. We're going to name the boat Visitation. And his son looked at him and he said... Uh, visitation why, why are we going to name the boat visitation and here's uh, the backstory behind this at his church there was uh, there was this lady that would call this pastor day in and day out I mean early in the morning in the, in the afternoon and, and in the evening and we couldn't get to him he'd would, he would call the secretary. And this woman was just so on, on his back that, Pastor, you need to be out visiting. You need to be out visiting this member and this member and this member and this member. You need to visit. You need to visit. You need to visit. And definitely, visiting is a, is a good thing. It, you know, it, it's something that a pastor should do. But it's not the only thing that he should do. And this lady, she just wanted him to, to all the time just be out visiting and visiting and visiting. And he said, Son, we're going to name it Visitation. So that every time that woman calls the secretary... And she can tell that lady that the pastor is out on visitation today. And, uh, and that's where he is. <laughs> see, That's just a humorous way of, of showing that just because you say something doesn't mean it's, it's real, right? You know, that, that man wasn't out on visitation even though that was the word that was spoken out of his mouth. And see, this is what's happening here. These people are saying things... But it's not reality. They don't really have a desire to back up with uh, actions the words that they are speaking. And so we find this all throughout Scripture here. That people that profess faith in Jesus, they have a lot of words to say, but they don't have a lot of actions to back it up. I notice in First uh, John, he speaks about this quite a bit. So listen to these two passages of Scripture from First John. First one uh, in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. John says this, he says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's not a real question. That's a rhetorical question. How does the love of God abide in someone when they have ample goods to give to those in need within the body of Christ, but they don't? The love of God doesn't abide in that person is what John is saying. If your faith that you say you have with your mouth has not transformed your heart in your life, James is teaching us here that that's not faith that's alive, that's faith that's dead. 1 John chapter 4 verses 19 through 21, John says this if anyone says, I love God, notice, if anyone says, I love God, but then hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. These people say that they love God, they say that they have faith, but they have no transformed life to actually validate that claim that they believe or love the Lord Jesus. They say it, but then again we can say anything, can't we? I could say to you tonight that I'm the starting linebacker for the Carolina Panthers. I could say that tonight, I could but you all know that's not right? Right? I don't, I don't play football for the Carolina Panthers. I could say to you tonight, I have a billion dollars in my bank account. I could say that to you. Y'all know that's wrong, right? no preacher making a billion dollars, right? Y'all know that. And so there are outward realities that reveal whether our claim is actually true or not. And James is teaching us here That people that say they have faith, but they don't have a life of transformation to back it up. If there's no hint whatsoever that a person has a regard for God, a regard for the image bearers of God, James says here that that faith is not real. It's dead. Verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. Once again, we're not saying here tonight as... As it's been said already, we're not saying that you have to work your way to God in order to be right with Him. The Bible teaches us that there's only one way to be right with God, and that is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Faith alone in Jesus Christ is never alone. It always results in a transformed life in which we begin to love not ourselves, but love God. Not be centered on ourselves and focused on ourselves, but focused on other people. So what about you tonight and your claim to faith, your profession of faith in Jesus Is it real? Is it alive? Is there evidence in your life that people can look at and say that person, they have vital spiritual signs that their faith is indeed real and true and genuine and is alive. There's a kind of faith that's not real faith. James teaches us here that it is a dead faith. But James teaches us not only that there is such a thing as a dead faith, but as we go on to verses 18 and 19, James teaches us here something that's quite provoking, and that is that there is such a thing as demonic faith. There is a kind of faith that demons and the devil actually possess. You say, well, what is that? That's what we see there in verses 18 and 19. Uh, There in verse 18, uh, James says, he he again uh, raises kind of a hypothetical argument that he knows someone will say that he's writing to. And what's the argument there? We'll read it there in verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James responds by saying, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And when James says here that someone will argue or someone will say that you have faith and I have works, The sense here is that this opposing argument is that faith and works don't really have anything to do with one another. Faith and works, according to this person that's the opponent, they aren't connected. In other words, they're saying faith is one thing and works are another thing. Works have nothing to do with my faith and my faith has nothing to do with my works. They're saying, I can say that I have faith in Jesus, but then live however I want to. And James says here, the way he combats this, is he says, Okay, well, you show me your faith apart from your works. And there's absolutely no way to do that. There's no way to prove that you have faith unless you have a life that's been transformed by Jesus Christ that validates that claim to faith. That's why James says, I will show you my faith by my works he says here, in verse 19, that there's a kind of faith that even demons have. He says, verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Demons have a kind of faith. James is not saying here that demons are saved. He's saying here that there's a kind of faith that demons possess that doesn't save, and it's possible for people like us to possess that same kind of faith. What we find here is that true faith is not merely intellectual, and true faith is not merely emotional. Notice what he says here about these demons. He says, they believe that God is one. They believe that. When you look throughout the Gospels and in Jesus' ministry, Jesus, he comes in contact with these demons all the time. And when he casts out these demons, they reveal that they know a whole lot about Jesus. And they know a whole lot about the Bible. And they know a whole lot about their eternal destiny. One passage that comes to mind is Mark chapter 1, verses uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. I'll just read this for you here. You don't have to turn there, just listen closely. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, He, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And the unclean spirit cried out, and this is what the demon said, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons have better theology than a lot of Christians. These demons, they know Christology. They know who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the only begotten Son of God. Not only do they have good Christology, not only do they know a lot about Jesus, They also know a lot about their eternal destination. They say there, or this one demon says, have you come to destroy us? They know that they are ultimately doomed. They know that they are ultimately condemned. And they know a whole lot about this. And they believe it. But demons are not going to heaven. Demons are going to hell. And James is teaching us here that demons have an intellectual assent to some informational facts about God. And James is teaching us that that's not what faith is. True faith is not merely agreeing to some informational facts about God or about Jesus. It's just they they have this kind of faith. They really do believe that Jesus is who He said He was and they really do believe that God has determined that they're going to be cast into the lake of fire, they get that. They understand that. But not only do they have an intellectual belief, but James teaches us here in verse 19 that they also have a belief that's very emotional. What does he say there? Even the demons believe a fundamental doctrine about God, that He is one God, and they shudder. It's a very interesting word here only time that it's ever used in the New Testament. And this this shuddering here has to do with with an emotional, almost violent, compulsive trembling before God. Demons do that. They are in awe of God in a terrifying way. They have emotion behind it. And James is saying, that's not what true faith does. That's not the essence of true faith. You have people that have said that they trusted in Jesus and they say, yeah, I know a lot about it. Know a lot about the Bible. Know a whole lot of, of the scriptures. And I, I get emotional when I when I hear hear songs about Jesus, or I get emotional when I hear about Jesus. But that's really not the question, right? Let me go ahead and say it's good that you've got intellectual facts about Jesus. That's a good thing. Knowledge is very valuable. It's a good thing you get emotional. when you you think about Jesus. But if that's all you got, that's not true faith. Because true faith, James is teaching us here, is displayed in a transformed life in which you love God and you love your neighbor. So if your life is marked by a love for yourself instead of a love for God, and a love for yourself instead of a love for your neighbor, well, you don't have anything more than what the devil has. He's got an intellectual, factual piece of information about God and he's going to hell. Tonight, there is a kind of thing as demonic faith. Faith is not mere intellectual belief. Faith is not emotionalism. So, what is faith? If faith is not dead faith, then... Faith is not demonic faith. James, tell us now. What is it that true faith is all about? What is it that true faith actually does? And that's what we see there in verses 20 through 26. There is a, a kind of faith that is dead. There is a kind of faith that is demonic. But what we find here in this last kind of faith is that there is a faith that is dynamic. That is, a faith that is not merely intellectual, not merely emotional, but also transformational. Notice there in verses 20-26, through James teaches us there in a kind of forthright manner that dynamic faith is a faith that leads to a transformed life. Read with me again in verse 20. He says, in in no uncertain terms, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, Faith apart from works is useless. And then He proceeds to give us two examples from the Old Testament. First of all, Abraham. And then second of all, this lady named Rahab. Notice there in verse 21, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You've got to be very careful here Because James is going to say something that seems contradictory to what the Apostle Paul says. He says that one is is not justified by faith alone. You've got to be careful because the way that James is using this word justified here is completely different from the way that the Apostle Paul uses it. The way that James is using this word here justified is more of a a vindictive way. That his faith is vindicated. It is shown to be true by the way that he lived. And how was it that Abraham's faith was vindicated by his works? Well, God told him to do something. I think in Genesis chapter 22 and Abraham obeyed. And when Abraham obeyed, taking Isaac his son to offer up offer him up as God told him to, his faith was verified. It was validated. It was shown to be actually true and living and not dead and demonic. And as a result, it was a fulfillment, an expression of what was said in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And as a result... He was called a friend of God. You see how this works here: that we are justified, that is saved, counted right before God through faith alone. But that faith is never alone by itself. It is always preceded and followed by good works, which then verify that the truth or that the faith is actually real. That is what it means to be a friend of God in right relationship with Him. And then the second example He gives there is in uh, verses 24 and following. You see that a person is justified by works. That is vindicated by works and not just faith alone. And then the second example is in verses 25 and 26. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Speaking of Joshua chapter 2, when the people of God were about to go in, uh, they sent ahead some spies and Rahab, this pagan prostitute there, she had heard about the works of God. She had trusted in Him. And as a result of that, she wanted to help out the people of God. Her works were validating, verifying the faith that she had. As James says in verse 26, for as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith." apart from works is dead. What is he saying? It's very simple. When someone gets saved, they act like it. When someone believes in Jesus, they're never the same. They're just not. This is what happened to me. Right? So, all throughout my teenage years, up until I was 19 years old, there was only one person that I cared about, and it was me. That's all I cared about. Why? Because I was lost. All I cared about was becoming popular. All I cared about was about what people thought about me. All I cared about in life was about making sure that I made a whole lot of money whenever I grew up. I I, I cared a whole lot about my appearance. I cared a whole lot about what people thought about me on the party scene. I was lost, and I did what lost people do. I cared about myself, but not about God and not about anybody else. But as I told you on Sunday morning, I have a younger brother that came to faith in Christ two years before I did. And every single day for about two years, he came to me and he lovingly confronted me. See, I called myself a Christian that entire time. I, I, I said to people, I'm a Christian, you know. I believe that Jesus died and, and I, I believe in the Bible, but I had no life to, to back it up. And my younger brother, because he loved me and he cared for my soul and the eternal destination that awaited me, he came to me every day in love and not argumentative. He came to me and said, Brother, based on the way you're living your life, I don't think you're saved. I don't think you really know this Jesus that you say you know. And oh, I would get mad. I'd get so angry with him. How dare you judge me? How dare you say something like that to me? But you know what? He was right. And the reason I was mad is because I loved my sin and I didn't want to give it up. I thought that I could have my sin and also claim the Savior. And friends, that's not the way it works. It's just not. There's some things in Scripture you know, that we say that's kind of a gray area. You know, it's kind of room to disagree. Maybe you believe this about it. Maybe, you, maybe it's that. This is not one of those areas. The Bible is so crystal clear on this. It's so black and white on this. That when somebody gets saved, they get saved. And they begin to act like it. Their life is transformed. And we're not talking about perfection tonight, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not even close to, to being perfect. But praise God, I'm not who I used to be. I've been changed. By the grace of God, I've been changed. And continually, day after day, God is working on me. And each day, you know, it feels like some days it's a couple of steps back and the next day it's maybe a couple forward and then another one back and then a... A few more forward and, a, and then a few more back. But see, that the thing is, is I, I'm moving in the right direction. I'm not running headlong to hell anymore. Amen. Why? Because I've been gripped by this one named Jesus mm-hmm. who gave His life for me on the cross. who was crushed in my place. Bore the wrath of God where I should have worked. When someone gets saved, they get saved and they're changed. We close tonight with this illustration. Forgive me if you've heard it before, and bear with me. Hey, what James is talking about here tonight, is it's very simple. He gives all these these examples and from the Old Testament. It's as simple as this. Let's say tonight that uh, I was on my way up here, and I was, I was by myself, just like I came tonight. And let's say, you know, we, we started everything at 7 o'clock tonight, and, and Gary got up here at 7, the, the choir got up here and started singing, and Looked around and said, man, the the visiting pastor, he's not here. (laughs) And uh, everybody's looking around, looking at, you know, oh, he's not here yet, you know. And uh, 7.15 comes along, I'm still not here. And Gary's starting to get nervous, starting to think, well, I'm going to have to stand up and preach, I hope I got something, you know. And uh, 7.30 gets here and it's time for me to stand up and I'm not here yet. And so Gary stands up here, and uh, he just you know, trusts the Spirit of God. He reads the scriptures, and about this time, about eight o'clock, I, I come rolling to the door. I say, "Y'all, goodness! I, y'all won't believe what happened to me." And I said, "What? What's wrong? You okay?" I said, "Man, y'all won't believe what happened. I, I was on my way over here, and I got about halfway. I was out there on sixty-four, and uh, I had a flat tire." And I pulled my car off on the side of the road. And I was trying to change the flat tire. Y'all know what happened to me? A Mack truck ran me over. It ran me over. Can y'all believe that? I, I got ran over by a Mack truck. And you're going to think one of one or two things in that moment. Either this man is out of his mind. Or this man is a liar. Because if I got hit by a Mack truck, I can tell you this. I'm not going to be the same. I'm going to look a whole lot different after I have an encounter with a Mack truck than what I looked like before. And you see, it's possible for people to walk around and say, I've had an encounter with God and they haven't been changed. And how much bigger is God than a Mack truck? Oh, like infinitely more bigger. You see, you can't have an encounter with God and not be changed. It's just not the way it works. You have an encounter with God, you're never going to be the same. True faith is not dead. True faith is not demonic. True faith is dynamic. And if we have real, genuine, born-again faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to have a life, a transformed life, not by our own doing, but by the Spirit and grace of God that will confirm and validate that our faith is real. What kind of faith do you have? Do you have a dead faith? Do you have a merely demonic faith? Or do you have a dynamic faith? May it be that everyone within the sound of my voice here tonight has truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ and that you know, that you know, that you know that your faith is real because your life, the way it is now, is not anywhere close to what you used to be before you had that encounter with God through faith in Jesus. Let's take that desire. Let's turn it into a prayer. And let's lift it up to the Lord. Would you pray with me?